0: You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: morning, Church. Um, Today's Bible reading is in two parts. Um, The first is Exodus 19, uh, verses 1 to 11. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speak will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Our second passage is from First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your word.
0: Good morning. My name is Caleb. It's a privilege to preach to you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, may your word be our rule, and your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Christ our sole concern. Amen. As Matt said, this is week seven of our series in Exodus. It's getting more and more difficult to recap where we've been. Um, We're in chapter 19, which technically is not even halfway through uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, It's almost halfway, but we're through most of the story that we all know. And and by the time we get to Exodus 19, most of the action has happened. We've got three more weeks uh, following our birthday weekend. We have three more weeks in this series. It's getting hard to recap. Here's my one-sentence recap. God's people, the Israelites, had been captives in Egypt, serving as slaves to the Egyptian pharaohs for centuries, until God miraculously called Moses, proved himself to be the true God, and delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea. That's what's happened So far, and now this morning, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai. Um, And what happens at Mount Sinai? Well, we've actually been here before. Do you remember when we were in Mount Sinai? We were there back in chapter 3. In Exodus 3, Moses is a shepherd in the wilderness, and he wanders up to this mountain, this burning bush, and it's on Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. It's on Mount Sinai where... God reveals himself to Moses and gives a particular call to Moses to save his people. So we're here back at, at Sinai. In that interaction in chapter 3, God says to Moses, a sign for you that I'm truly God is that you are going to, once the people have left Egypt, you are going to bring them here and you are going to worship. And so this is sort of the end of the roadmap for Moses. After he goes through the Red Sea, I imagine, you know, he knows we're headed to Mount Sinai. After that, who knows what's going to happen next. But this is, this is where the story is going. We're, we're going to end up at Mount Sinai. God's at least told us that much. We're going to be here at Mount Sinai for the next 59 chapters in the Bible. This is the point in the story where when you're trying to read through the whole Bible, it gets tough. Um, because the next 59 chapters all happen on site Here at Mount Sinai, we won't leave until we'll finish Exodus here. We'll go all of Leviticus, and then we'll get through Numbers 10. And in Numbers 10, the people of God finally leave this encampment where they are. 59 chapters. It's just over a year, uh, just over a calendar year that they're going to spend here at the foot of Mount Sinai. Chapter 19, we just heard. Um, True confession, we were not originally planning on preaching on this chapter. Dave and I were discussing, oh, Exodus, it's always tough. You've got to cut some stuff. For example, in between what we just read and last week's sermon, a lot of cool things happen. Manna in the wilderness happens. Water from the rock happens. There's this interaction with Jethro, his father-in-law, that's really cool, so read all of that. You've got to leave some stuff on the cutting room floor when you do a sermon series. And we were not planning on doing chapter 19. David sort of suggested it, but I was kind of like, I don't know. Is it that important? And then um, we had lunch with a colleague of Dave's who's an Old Testament scholar, kind of an uh, expert on sort of this range of the Bible, and someone Dave knew. So he reached out and said, hey, could we have lunch with you? And so we got to pick his brain on, you know, what's What's the important stuff here? What, what are the themes that you see? What should we make sure we touch on? And we're kind of flipping through the syllabus that he printed out, and we get to, oh, okay, Exodus 19. What does he have here? This is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. <laughs> and Dave and I look at each other, it's like, I was like, I was trying to tell Dave that. I was trying, I, you know, I, I was trying to, he, he was, uh, he wasn't listening. I was trying to, no, um, So, so, basically the sermon this morning is my own exploration of why is Exodus 19, why can you make the case that it's the most important chapter in the Old Testament? Here's here's the sermon. (laughs) Chapter 19 is the why behind everything we have read thus far and it's the why of everything that is to come. It's the vision for, 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 for the Exodus, and it's the vision for what God is about to do in the next 59 chapters of the Bible. Um, chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, right? We all grew up learning the Ten Commandments. In, in the tradition that I grew up in, it was a big deal when churches stopped reciting the Ten Commandments every week in church. Did anyone grow up reading the Ten Commandments every week in church? Yeah, probably not. Um, it's a bizarre thing to do. Um, I mean, it was cool. You learn them. You know what the Ten Commandments are. Um, but, you know, so we... we I, I don't think I was a part of a church that ever did that, but I remember it was still like a debate. You read the Lord's Prayer, you say the Ten Commandments every week in church. That was part of the, the liturgy of the church and the tradition that I grew up in. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, I... I'm confessing, I made this mistake of jumping from Red Sea to Ten Commandments right away. But I think you lose the vision and the why of what's going on when you do that. Um, And I was thinking about some of the famous movies um, that that, that we've seen portrayal of this story. This is Prince of Egypt, um, Disney's portrayal of this story, which takes some liberties uh, but it's still you know a, a pretty classic retelling of the story, great soundtrack and here 's the closing image. This is the closing image in prince of egypt it 's Moses with his staff coming down this throng of people, and he 's got in his hands the Ten Commandments. Um, I mean, the other most famous depiction of this uh, the most famous depiction of this story is the Ten Commandments, which It's interesting, this Charlton Heston classic of the whole Exodus story, they called the Ten Commandments, right? They didn't call it the Passover or the Exodus or, you know, they called this movie The Ten Commandments. And similarly, it ends not quite on this image, but with, you know, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and giving them to Israel. And you can sort of get the sense, the image, that the purpose, the reason, the why behind the Exodus was because God is a little OCD and wanted some people to follow some rules. The commandments are the reason. Come on out now, follow these rules. And, and, and so, you know, this, this group of people that are about to receive the Ten Commandments and the people that Moses is here pointing at um, are, are, are simply the people that God wanted to follow these rules because he's, he's a bit obsessive-compulsive about following rules and being litigious if you skip chapter 19, you can get that impression because chapter 19 is the why. It's the vision behind what's happened in the past and it's the vision behind what God is about to instruct in chapter 20 and onwards. It is a bit, uh, I think, like a Lego box. Um, You would never go to the store And buy a box of Legos that was just in a white case, right? There's a reason that Lego spends, you know, I would imagine a considerable amount of money and energy putting these things together and then, of course, setting them with this background and this backdrop. And there's always things on there that aren't actually in the box to make it look cooler, Um, and, and, and you're going through the aisle, and these things look incredible. They're put together. You see what they are, and, and, and so you want to buy them, right? You want to build this castle, and then you get to work on it. And as you're building the castle, at least, you know, you're, you have some instructions you're looking at. You're working with the pieces, but you're also looking at the box, trying to remember what you're supposed to build, right? And chapter 19 in Exodus is a little bit like the Lego box that reminds you of the vision and the purpose behind what's to come. And we can get caught up in chapter 20 and be like, okay, yeah, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, but we lose what's on the front of the Lego box. The law wasn't an end in itself. It was pointing us towards something more beautiful, something bigger, something with purpose. Chapter 19 is the vision. It's the image on the front of the Lego box reminding us what this is all about. Okay, so what is... On the front of the Lego box, what is the vision? God says, uh, well, let me, let me reread verses four, five, and six, because this is, this is the really important, I mean, this is the really important part. You yourselves, this is what God says to Moses to tell the Israelites. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God calls uh, Israel three things. He says, a treasured possession. And he says, don't forget what I've done for you. And this is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament and throughout the law. You were once a people in slavery. Don't forget it. The book of Psalms is basically a book of memory. Don't forget what I've done and pray that as your prayer for the future. Um, You will be my treasured possession. The tenderness of the image here um, is beautiful. I carried you on eagle's wings. And brought you to myself and you will be my treasured possession. Like that in a room full of stuffed animals, the kid always has the one favorite that's got to be in bed, right? Got to go to bed with that particular stuffed animal. You will be my treasured possession. I carried you on eagle's wings. There's a tenderness here. There's an affection here that needs to go on the Lego box. Don't forget this. You're my treasured possession. I brought you to myself, but Israel's special existence is not an end in itself. Although the whole earth is mine, God says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel's election, Israel's being chosen as God's people, has a scope and a purpose. There to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These two commands really are almost synonymous with each other. They work together to carve out Israel's unique vocation. What does a kingdom of priests mean? It's interesting that we get this language before any of the like description of what a priest does in Israel, but there would have been an understanding of what, what does a priest do generally among the Israelites. What does a priest do? Firstly, a priest goes to God on behalf of a people. The priest brings forward the concerns, the praises, the worship of a particular people. Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. The whole earth is God's. I don't need you to go out and conquer it for me. I just need you to function as a priest. I've said this before at church, that when we gather as the people of God, we sort of bring with us the concerns of the world, the thanksgiving of the world, the praise of the world, the entire created order, uh, you know, owes its worship, its existence, its praise, its gratitude to its Creator, and we have the incredible honor and blessing. Israel here is given the blessing, and honor, and privilege of being a priestly nation—the ones who come forward and offer that on behalf of God. Priests also do the reverse; they bring God to the people, and so Israel is going to function in both of those ways. They're going to represent God's word, God's will, God's love to the world, and they're going to represent the world. To God, They're going to be a holy nation, separate, not isolated, but set apart, unique. This people gathered in front of, Mo- of Moses at Mount Sinai, this throng of people that we see, you know, uh, Moses looking out in this Prince of Egypt, this image, it's, it's, it's a gathering of missionaries almost, right? It's not, it's not, wow, you guys are so special, so unique. Enjoy it. It's no, here you are, so that the world may know. On the Lego box of Israel's life is the vision of being God's treasured possession, called to be the embodiment of God's reign for the entire world. What is on the Lego box of your faith? Seems like a bit of a childish analogy, but it's been a good one for me to think about. Um, what's on the Lego box of our faith? I think sometimes I can think back on times in my life where I've been so obsessed with um, the pieces and the instruction and the manual and I just get lost in what I'm doing. I'm piecing things together in my life and I think I've created what I'm supposed to create and I look back up at the box, which is Christ, and I look down and say, oh, that's not, shoot. That's not what I was, oh man, okay, okay. I gotta go back and, and try this again. Some of the times in my life when I probably couldn't have cared less than just flicking the Lego pieces around doesn't really matter if I build anything uh, I'll just play around over here it doesn't matter God's got no real plan for me there's no structure it doesn't all matter um, and then something happens where you catch a vision oh yeah I'm I'm oh yeah that's the vision that's beautiful that's incredible that's what it could be um I mean I think there's a lot of other times you know we, we we've, we've got the Lego box and we're we're, we're we're focused on our pieces, getting the, the scripture right and the Bible right and the doctrine right and putting it all together, making sure we're building this thing. And, and then I see what you're doing over there and I say, No, 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 let me help you with that. I need to, I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I you're not doing your pieces right. You got to do this with the Bible and this with scripture and get that together. And, and, then, and then there's something jolting that causes us to lift our gaze, to fix our eyes on Christ again. And usually it's the reminder that, oh, yeah, this is simpler and more beautiful than I've been making it and my shoulders and my jaw are tight from bending over trying to get everything right when I should just be looking at the image of, of what this is supposed to be and then this becomes a joy again right then then I'm working towards something and 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 I can see it become what it's supposed to become what's on what's on the lego box what's what's the image that we're building towards Chapter 19 gives us the image, this covenant relationship where God's people are a treasured possession called to be a holy nation. Spoiler alert, plug your ears if you don't want to know what happens, um, they don't do a good job. You know, the text says, if you obey my commandment, you'll be my treasured possession. They don't. Um, and, and so, in fact, pretty quickly, they're doing things that the text says cause Yahweh to become a laughingstock. Look at these idiot people who have set themselves free from Egypt, and now they're in a herd of mess, and they're all going to die. And this God that they're so, you know, we're so proud of, is is looks like a fool. So, you know, I, you know, we're left with the question: Is this covenant really worth anything? And this is the other reason that chapter nineteen is so important. This is because it's it's one of many parts that that of many links that kind of run throughout the entire set of scriptures. Um, this theme of God's covenant, God's promises, being broken and being kept and being broken and being kept. I want to look a little bit at some of these covenants. Um, Genesis 1 doesn't use the Hebrew word berit covenant at all, but the idea begins here. God creates, doesn't need to create, doesn't need to make anything, but God does create. Out of love and abundance, God creates to be in Communion with hum with humanity, to have the created world, to to, to be the God of. Um, And and you know, lives with Adam and Eve, and they are his treasured possession of all creation. Their treasured possession, and they're given vocation and a calling and a job and a responsibility um, to care for creation, and it's perfect. They don't have to be priests because nothing has to be mediated, because God walks in the garden and it's perfect. Um, And Adam and Eve sin, and their disobedience causes that union with God to be fractured. So then the first time we get covenant is with the story of Noah. So Genesis 9 is the end of the story. Genesis 6, of course, is this incredible story of Noah's ark, the flood, the destruction of so much, and the saving of Noah. And at the end of the story, we get Uh, We get the point of the story. Here's the point of the story. God said to Noah, after he puts the rainbow in the sky, he says, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. This is the point of the story of Noah's Ark, this covenant that's being made. And there's a hint here in this covenant of what's coming because when, when God puts the bow in the sky, there's not a word for rainbow in Hebrew, it's just bow, God puts a bow in the sky, and it's the same word that would have been used for a hunting bow, a military bow. It's a weapon. God puts a weapon in the sky, right? Um, And that weapon is pointed up at God, right? God, and this is the point of the Noah story. God is making a covenant, and he's saying, I'm on the hook for you. The bow points up into the heavens, whereas there's a very literal sense that God is seated in the heavens, in, in, in Hebrew so so God is seated in the heavens and at the end of the Noah story God puts a bow in the sky and it's pointed at him right and I'm going to make a covenant I will not destroy all life again and I'm on the hook for it it's it's on me so that's the that's the covenant that's made with Noah so this we, we get this expanding sense God makes a covenant with creation I'm on the hook for creation I will not destroy it all again um Then we get to Genesis 12, where the covenant begins to take a little bit more shape, and God speaks to Abraham. And now this family is commissioned to be God's treasured possession, holy nation, kingdom of priests. God says to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're starting to get a little more shape around the covenant. We kind of see, okay, God is going to use a particular people to make make his covenant known and a blessing to all people. Abraham also, not perfect. Um, You know, if the covenant rests entirely on Abraham's faithfulness, the covenant would have, would have failed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, all along the story of, of the covenant in Abraham's family, there's lots of opportunities for it to falter and fall. Um, so we get the Mosaic covenant in, in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy, we get, we get more of it. This promise moves from a family now to a nation, and that's where we are, we're at today. The promise that was made to a family is now made to a nation, and a nation is called to live into this covenant. In 2 Samuel, we get the Davidic covenant where God promises to restore the kingdom of Israel through the line of David, and there's a lot more to say about that, but not this morning. Um, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then we start to get a picture of a new covenant, and in Jeremiah 31, we get this description of a covenant. Jeremiah writes, the days are coming. Jeremiah is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And the people of, of Judah, of, of God's people are in trouble. Things are not going well. The covenant seems to have folded. Jeremiah writes to them, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The covenant is moving from a law written on tablets of stone to a law written on the heart rooted in forgiveness. In Luke 22, Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he hands it to them to drink. This is the end game. This is where this is going. Israel fails time and time again to uphold the covenant and to bear faithful witness to the world that there is a God. That Yahweh is his name, that he is holy, and that he is good. And so God reveals the fullness of his plan in sending into his world the Son. God fulfills the covenant himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant made in Exodus 19. He is the faithful covenant partner where we fail, he is the treasured possession the one and only beloved Son of the Father. He is the holy nation, obedient, rejecting earthly power, rejecting the violence of the earth for faithful obedience. He is the priest who carries the people before God and who bears God before the people. Finally, God it's not that he gives up. This is his plan all along, but you get the sense of God just, you know, I'm going to fulfill this covenant myself. I'm going to be the faithful partner that I need in order to be united, connected. So our reading in chapter 19 ends, and here's what happened. God God descends in a dense cloud on Mount Sinai. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's fire, there's violent wind. God speaks to Moses. We hear his voice speak to Moses. The people of Israel hear his voice speak to Moses and he gives them the law and he affirms the covenant with them. He says, you're gonna be my holy, my holy nation and all people are gonna know that I am Yahweh, that I am holy and good because of you. This moment in Israel's history becomes known as Shavuot the festival of weeks. It becomes one of Israel's three pilgrim festivals, and these are really important in Israel's history. Passover was just seven weeks before. It's called the festival of weeks because it's connected to Passover. It's really the fulfillment of Passover. Passover was about getting us to this point of God making a covenant with his people. So it's called the festival of weeks because it's seven weeks after Passover. They're at Mount Sinai, and this event happens, and it's called Shavuot. And it's... uh, it celebrates the giving of the law and this covenant being made. This festival is also called Pentecost. What has begun at Passover reaches its conclusion at Pentecost. All right, fast forward to a room in Jerusalem where 120 people are gathered who are in the wilderness, wandering. They don't know what's coming next. These are followers of Jesus, but Jesus is no longer with them. They've seen him risen from the dead, but he's ascended and he's gone, and they're not sure what happens next. 120 people gathered in a room in Jerusalem, praying, waiting on the Lord, wondering what to do next. Seven weeks earlier, 12 of them at least, the disciples were in the upper room in Jerusalem with Jesus, celebrating Passover, When he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant, the fulfillment of the old. Drink this, everyone. The next day, Jesus is crucified, and three days later, he is raised from the dead. But now he's ascended, and he's not with them anymore. And they're gathered in this room, and it's seven weeks later, and it's Pentecost. It's Shavuot. It's the festival of weeks. They're here. People are from everywhere in Jerusalem to celebrate this holy day. And while they're praying, the Spirit of God descends, and there's the sound of violent wind that fills the space, and it's as if fire is alighting on their heads, and they're not sure what's happening. People start speaking in different languages and tongues, and they go out into the streets, and people think they're drunk because they're behaving so strangely, but everyone that hears them preach and speak hears them in their own language. And the God who descended on Mount Sinai has descended again on his church. And the commission is the same. You are to be a holy nation, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. Except this time, the covenant has been fulfilled. The faithful one has been faithful unto the end. And so the covenant is available to all people. And people from every tribe and nation and tongue hear the words of the disciples in their own language. And they hear the commission that Israel heard on Mount Sinai, except this time it doesn't have to be mediated by Moses with threats of of death. This time it's for them and for their children. And it's for all people. The Pentecost that took place on Mount Sinai takes place again and it's the birthplace of the church because the covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. And that's why Peter can write to the church, a church full of male and female, slave and free, Gentile and Jew. He can write to the church and say, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He's quoting Exodus 19. A holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says to them, and I mean, this parallels 19 and 20, right? He says, you've received mercy, you've received grace, you've been called to be a people, my special possession, so that the entire world can know my name. And he says to them, therefore, live such good lives among the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. It's the same, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's Exodus 19 and 20 here captured um, in, in Peter's letter to the church. Yeah, so chapter 19 is pretty important. <laughs> it's, it's the whole thing. It's the vision. It's the picture on the Lego box. It's the why of it all. And it points us to that covenant relationship that God was so bent on having with you that he was willing to fulfill the covenant himself so that you could have life with him. The church is called to be the people who represent God to the world, who hold forth his love in the way they treat each other, and the way they interact with the world. Um, there was a Sony and I are just celebrated one year in Australia, which is exciting. Um, yeah, we, we moved here from from Chicago a year ago, and I had the privilege of being a pastor of a of a small congregation in many ways similar to Harborside. Um, a lot of young families, and um, we were members at a gym in Chicago. And one day I was at the gym and noticed one of the custodians, who was normally a very Gregarious, outgoing, happy guy was just not, he's just, I could tell something was off with him. And so I, I said, Hey, are you doing all right? And he just kind of shared openly that he was not doing all right. He had just lost someone. And um, I think I ended up buying him a Starbucks gift card or something. And, you know, anyways, I, I gave it to him and he was really thankful. And we ended up praying together and he was shocked that I was a pastor. And I invited him to church and um, he came. Which is cool. Um, it's always kind of surprising. It's like you actually came. Nice. Um, so yeah, he came to church, which was great. Came for a few times. Yeah, kind of got got to know a few people. Um, a few weeks later, I was in the gym, saw him, and I said, "Hi, hey, how, you know, how, how's it going for you at church? Like, what do you think? How's that? What's that been like for you?" And he's like, "Oh, yeah, it's been good, really good. You know, the music, it's great. And oh, yeah, really good. And, oh, you know, what my favorite part is." And I had just preached a cracker of a sermon, so I was like, oh, tell me, what's your favorite part? Yeah. No. Um, probably a little bit. And, um, and he goes, the dads. And I said, what? The, the dads? What do, you, what do you mean the dads? And he said to me, I've never seen dads that love their kids like that. And I said, whoa. (laughs) And he started, he said, yeah, the way Joe scoops up his boys. Or the way I saw Matt chasing after his son down the aisle. And, and, and the way that I saw Phil pick up his daughter and give her a hug. And I, the way I saw John scoop up his son and just tell him it was going to be all right. And he just listed off all the dads in the congregation and how he had seen each one of them just be affectionate in public and, and, and hold their kids and scoop them up and love them. The way he had watched them do that. And, and, I, and I learned pretty soon after that he had had an incredibly abusive father. And he had never felt safe around men. And he had never been in an environment where he just watched dads being affectionate, loving, caring, equal partners with their wives. He'd just never seen that before. And I know that I... Never preached a sermon that preached the gospel to him like those dads did. And um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was one of those like moments where you, you sort of look up and remember what's on the image of the box, right? You, as a pastor, you can get lost in the oh, what are we gonna do? What's our outreach ministry, blah, blah, blah. I, I just left saying, wow. Let's just, let's just be the church with the good dads. That's incredible. And, you know, you, you could have Hillsong's music and Tim Keller's preaching and you could have Nicky Gumbel leading your Alpha program and you'd have a, you'd have a huge church. But man, without, without the church loving each other, loving the people they're called to, it's just noise. It's just noise. And um, we are God's treasured possession, His holy nation, His kingdom of priests. What a privilege and a joy it is to be that. And we we do that by loving each other well. We do that by loving the people in our circles well. And it's as simple as that. Um, So let's live into that, let's be that church. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite um, others to come up. We're going to have a few people standing up front. We're going to have a time of prayer in our service now. We'll have some music playing, and it's a time of, of, of reflection, and it's a time to receive prayer. Um, we do this about once a month, a prayer ministry, where we'll have people standing up at the front who would love to, to pray with you, and you are invited to come forward. We'll have, come, come down the middle middle aisle and receive prayer. Who doesn't need prayer? Um, we all, we all need prayer and benefit from receiving prayer from our brothers and sisters. It's one of the ways we love each other, one of the ways we do care for each other. So we want to do that for each other. And as you come forward, um, you know, encourage you to say your name so that the person who's praying for you knows what your name is. And then um, if there's a prayer request, we'd love to pray for that. Maybe this morning it's just a word and, and you just if you're not sure what to say, just one word maybe, faith, courage, wisdom, clarity. You know, one word is enough and, and the person up front will pray for you and then you can return to your seat. So would encourage you um, to to just take a moment and think about that and consider what you might come forward for in prayer. Um, let me pray for all of us right now. God, we, we are humbled um, by... Uh, we're humbled by the the task uh, the calling being your treasured possession, your holy nation, your kingdom of priests, and we confess that um we we do not do this perfectly um, we do not, and we need you and your son, and we need your holy Spirit to be at work in our lives, teaching us more and more what it what it, what it looks like to love each other well and to love the world well um, I pray that you would help us this week. Um, yeah, to just be faithful and courageous in the calling you've given us. And now, during this time of prayer, I pray that as we come forward, we would be, um, yeah, honest and encouraged by this time of prayer, and that your Holy Spirit would, would move and be present with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.